on December 21st, 2017, the shortest and coldest day of the year. Darrell Jones found himself in the offices of the Plymouth County Superior Court. He'd been there before. As an inmate of the Massachusetts Department of Corrections, he'd seen a lot of courts. But today was different. He was about to take his first breath of icy New England air as a free man after 30 years behind bars. Because back in 85, a drug dealer was murdered in a sandwich shop parking lot. Witnesses didn't place Darrell at the scene, but biased cops and jurors did. And he was just 18 at the time, a kid. And he was thrown into a maximum security prison with men who'd been in there longer than Darrell had even been alive. I mean, the first day I came in, while I was waiting in the holding tank, the first thing I saw was a guy coming by stabbed up. Behind bars, he was told when to eat, when to exercise, when to bathe, every single day for more than 30 years. He often didn't have more than the weekly issued one bar of soap and one roll of toilet paper to his name. But what kept him going all those years was the knowledge that he was, in fact, innocent. So when he finally signed his release papers and stepped out of the courthouse without handcuffs, it felt better than he could have ever imagined. It just felt like a new birth in a new world and a new opportunity. It felt like freedom. Whatever freedom was supposed to be, whatever the dream and the hope and the dream of a slave and what we talk about in freedom, it felt like freedom. Most people would be super pissed after serving so much time for a crime they didn't commit. But Durrell does not feel that way. To him, anger is just another form of imprisonment. And after three decades, he doesn't have time for that. This is I Survivor. From Wondery, I'm Jenna Brister. And I'm Wagatwe Wanjuki. And this is I Survivor. This is a show about the people who fought back, who won, and who spend their lives growing from their experience. And today we are talking to Darrell Diamond Jones. He served 32 years in prison for a crime he didn't even commit, right? He was sentenced when he was just 18 years old. The crazy thing is, like, he could have just pled guilty and gotten out in about six to eight years, right? But he chose not to do it. He knew he was innocent and he believed in himself, even if no one else did. But nobody else did. He didn't get a fair trial, and it took 30 years for a judge to take notice and admit that Darrell was not treated fairly for decades. He had had a difficult trial, tried to appeal three times, maintained his innocence the entire time, and no one listened to him. Darrell's finally getting a new, hopefully fair, trial on May 20th, 2019. What really struck me about Darrell's story is that he made a choice in prison, right? Instead of leaning into the anger, which would have been totally justified, and letting it eat away at him, he decided to keep hope alive. And in order to do that, he created a purpose for himself. Darrell's story begins in the 1970s in Brockton, a small city outside of Boston. He was just a normal kid who loved rap music and roller skating when his life was interrupted. I had good times, bad times, family difficulties, and sometimes joyous times, and that's all I can remember. So one night, 18-year-old Darrell and his friends were getting sandwiches at a shop in Brockton, Massachusetts. Then they decided to go get a drink across the street. It was Monday night, and Darrell thinks he remembers watching a Monday night football game on the television. I was in Brockton, Mass, at a bar called Pete and Mary's. It was um, like a little corner bar. And I was there with, you know, a friend of mine. It was like my hangout, you know. 
they didn't have an age requirement and that type of thing. You could just come in there or play pool or just hang out. As Darrell and his friends were getting ready to leave, the police stopped them on their way out. They said there'd been a shooting. They just told everybody there was a shooting outside. No one should leave and paused us at the door. They walked us outside, I think, at that time. And they were witnesses, and they stopped us there, and they asked the people to look and see if they see anybody they saw. And the people said no, and then they let us go. Durrell, also known around town as Diamond, he and his friends went home thinking that they were totally done with it. But he started hearing things, and some police informants had apparently brought his name up in connection with the shooting. I called the police station. And when I called him, I said, you're looking for me, Diamond? And I said, well, I'm coming down there right now because you're not looking for me. Darrell thought he could just go and set the record straight, that it was just all this big misunderstanding. And I was going to the police station and happened to have stopped in the bar. And it's the police station is right across the street from the bar, meaning you can stand in front of the bar and see the police station. You can throw a pebble and hit the police station, basically, if you wanted to. And I came to go turn myself in. And while I was in the bar, the bartender, I guess, called and said I was in the bar. And then the police came to the bar and arrested me there. The cops that arrested me, they just brought me right over to the station and told me I was under arrest for this murder that I knew nothing about. It was like a joke to me. And it's sad to say that, but it was because I was sitting there saying, I don't know anything about it. So what can you do to me? I really had the attitude of you can't do anything to me. You're really wasting time. So I really didn't take it serious until they were just arresting me and fingerprinting me and doing that. Then I was going, now you're really pushing it. So I was a little upset that they were pushing it. But I didn't get it. It didn't make sense to me at all. It just didn't make sense. They took Darrell in for questioning. I was in that police station and they said they wanted to talk to me and they put a camera at the end of the table to record my interview, which they've never turned over to this day. And on that interview, we just went over like, you're looking for the wrong guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I had nothing to do with it. I don't even know the guy. I never seen him visually, never spoke to him, had no reason to talk to him. The police wanted him to admit that there was some sort of altercation between Durrell and the man who was killed, Guillermo Rodriguez. That somehow they'd got into an argument inside the bar that night. This guy didn't even speak English. I'm looking at everybody like, if I got into it with a person that didn't speak English, and all I can speak is English, it's going to be loud. The bar is so small, everyone's there. And the majority of everyone there knows him. They don't know me. So I'm looking at it as... It would have got loud because he would have been saying something. I didn't know I would have been saying something he didn't know. And it just would have got louder right there on the scene. You understand what I'm saying? Because we wouldn't have knew what each other was saying. So whatever there would have been a beef or an argument, it would have just been loud. And I'm like, I never met him. So it just didn't make sense. Darrell was charged with murder and they set his bail at $49,000. Darrell definitely couldn't afford it. So he stayed 10 months in jail awaiting his trial. He was positive that once he got to trial, they would just realize how absurd the case against him was. We were all confident. I mean, all the way up to the trial, I I, I just looked at it as this is they're going to lose. They, they, it's, it's a waste of time. This is just a bunch of media because all the media articles, you know, every article that they wrote from Brockton was saying, you know, five witnesses on able to identify suspect um, witnesses, key witness, unable to identify suspect. No one never identified me to this day. No one ever said that's him. You know, I went to jail with no one saying in the courtroom period that it was me. Darrell explains it like this. 
the same way you and I are talking right now and I'm in this studio. So we know I'm here. There's a guy sitting, you know, over there and he's and he's controlling the booth. And someone outside right now said that then me and this guy just stuck up an oil truck. But we know we're here and I know I'm talking to you. My your confidence is going to be it's impossible, right? You, you're not going to get me for something I didn't do. So it was just in my mind, it's impossible for this to occur. Every American has the right to trial by jury in criminal cases. It's the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, and it's a law in every state. But what you may not realize is that jury selection isn't random. Getting summoned to be a juror is, right, based on where you live. But the final juror selection from the summoned pool is actually done by lawyers and judges. And lawyers are looking for specific things when they choose the jurors. They should choose people who are competent and unbiased. But Darrell's attorney, Kenneth Elias, seemed to be against him from the beginning. I had an all-white jury. In fact, it wasn't an idea that I just had an all-white jury. It was as though everybody went and found people's mothers, you know, like the grandmothers. There was no young white people or any of that. It was just an all-white jury of older people. On the first day of Darrell's trial, his attorney, Elias, made Darrell sit 10 feet behind him in what's called a prison dock. That is not normal, y'all. Attorneys almost always sit next to their client during the trial. Oh, he wasn't in my favor at all. This guy totally manipulated me, lied, basically, in the whole trial. We, we never talked. We never did anything. He just sat me in a dock and used this excuse that I like to sit alone, you know, I, and that's the way I work. And it wasn't just disrespectful. Darrell's seat arrangement signaled to the jury that Elias thought Darrell was guilty. Come to find out, every case he had before me, I'm the only person he did that with. I was just like, this guy just BSed me on everything. Not including the fact that he waited to the third day of trial to tell me, oh, and by the way, um, it just dawned on me that I represent Detective Lagarde, who is in the case, and also represented him on a divorce, and I represent Smith. And then come to find out by the record, he's been representing the Brockton Police Department since the late 60s. So Darrell learned that his attorney had this conflict of interest. He knew he didn't trust this guy to fairly represent him, but he also didn't realize that he had another option. He didn't tell me that I could have another lawyer, right? So at that time, I'm them couldn't afford a lawyer. I'd, I'd never been to jail, you know? So I didn't need a lawyer in, in, in process and, you know, even knowing anything about it. That is part of the gig. That's exactly what they were pulling off. They gave me the guy they wanted me to have, you know? hey. We're the police, we're setting this up, and now you're gonna get the lawyer that represents us and been representing us before, you know, basically you were born. So that's how I got him. This is the um, free attorney that they gave me to make sure I went to jail. As Darrell's trial unfolded, none of the eyewitnesses who testified at trial made an in-court identification of Darrell as the shooter. No forensic evidence linked Darrell to the shooting. They had no evidence that Darrell had a motive to kill or that he even knew Rodriguez. The most damaging evidence that prosecutors had was a videotape of an interview with a key witness named Terry Lynn Starks. She says she could identify Jones based on a photo. But the thing is that she was only given photos of people that she knew, and then Darrell's photo. So, of course, she chose him because he was the only person she didn't know. So this cop made a video and they put it at the end of the table and they have Terry Lynn Stocks, you know, videotaping this. And during the video, when they play it at court, they there's a missing part in the middle, right in the middle. 
And right in the middle, a TV station, I mean, a TV show comes on, and it's called Sergeant Bilko, an old TV show. It just comes out of the blue. Right when she's talking about what, what the guy looked like and so on, it just comes on, this TV show. A segment from The Phil Silver Show was taped over part of Terry Lynn Stark's testimony. And what Darrell didn't realize at the time was that Guillermo, the man he was convicted of killing, was set to go on trial for dealing cocaine just after he'd been killed. And the cop who busted Guillermo was the same cop who arrested Doral. This was Detective Joseph Smith. It just happens to be the same cop, Joseph Smith, who put this case on me and who cut that videotape up. They asked Detective Smith about it in the trial. He said that he didn't edit the tape on purpose. It was just a mistake. And when they presented it at a trial, Detective Smith gets up and, they, and he explains why this part of the um, video is interrupted. And what he said was, I knew right there at trial because it didn't make sense. What he said was that he accident, he was watching it with the lawyer that I had, which is supposed to be my lawyer. So them two were supposed to be watching it. They were watching it together and he accidentally, he went to press play and he accidentally pressed record. And that's how the TV show got on there. But it was common sense to me that if you, if I'm watching something, what am I pressing play for? I'm watching it, right? So that didn't even make sense. It was just, it was something like out of a horror movie, like a horror trial, because it was, it was set up against me. You know, it took a lot of years in prison for me to just wake up to the idea that this thing was set up against me. If you're Gen X like me, your childhood probably sounded like some combination of and but not so long ago, video games were almost exclusively played by the programmers who made them. On our new series, we're telling the story of how video games broke out of university computer labs and found their way straight to the heart of popular culture. I'm Steven Johnson, the host of Wondery's show American Innovations where we tell the stories behind the inventions that have shaped our modern world. Listen to video games on American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app. Lieutenant Colonel Nancy Jacks is an Army scientist. Her story is the subject of The Hot Zone, a new miniseries from National Geographic on the 1989 Ebola scare in Ruston, Virginia. In 1989, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., Army scientist Nancy Jacks faced an unimaginable horror, Ebola's arrival on U.S. soil. That is the premise of National Geographic's upcoming three-night limited series, The Hot Zone. It's inspired by true events, and it stars Golden Globe and Emmy Award winner Juliana Margulies as Lieutenant Colonel Nancy Jacks. So Nancy, in 1989, you were testing some disease samples, and you still didn't know if it was Ebola or not. What was running through your head personally? Were you worried about yourself, your kids, all of mankind? Like I said, I wasn't afraid. You know, people always say what goes through your head. And, and there's these massive onsets of, of thought where, you know, I'm going, the kids are with a babysitter. There aren't any groceries in the house. And, oh, yeah, they may put me in the slammer. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the mental cascade that you go through. And uh, so when I got out of the decon uh, so I took my suit off. I was completely decontaminated. Uh, I got down, and it was the Zaire strain I was working with. I mean, it was the really super hot strain. And then this part I remember distinctly. I turned around, I kind of slid down the wall. And did you feel prepared to deal with it if it was Ebola? We could deal with it as long as it was quarantined in the building. We were the only people that had 
enough people present and had the right equipment and the right stuff, as as my husband would say, to really respond to one of these outbreaks. So, yes, I was comfortable that we could respond to it and do what we needed to do. And if it were Ebola, what would be the steps to containing it? It's really hard, and there's a big interface between geopolitical stability and how you would handle uh, an infectious disease outbreak. Uh, it's just extremely difficult to do. And and I think that's playing out now. You have Ebola that's broken out in very largely populated areas, and it's clearly being transmitted. And it's been very difficult to snuff out. It's hard to get in the right equipment. It's hard to get in the people. It's hard to enforce the quarantine. It's just plain hard to do. Uh, when we first started working with the disease, this occurred in very remote villages. And so the village would just quarantine. They would leave people in their huts to die, and then they would burn the hut down. And that was pretty much how they handled it. Uh, It never got into highly populated areas. The Hot Zone premieres this Memorial Day, May 27th at 9, 8 central on National Geographic. Tune in to see how the true story unfolded. Through all of this, Durrell is still telling anyone who would listen to him that he's innocent. Again, there wasn't any physical evidence against him, and the key witness testimony from Terry Lynn Starks had been tampered with. None of the witnesses who testified in court were sure that Darrell was the shooter. But that didn't change the jury's mind. An all-white jury convicted Darrell, a 19-year-old black man, after three days of deliberations. They found me guilty and gave me natural life, you know, meaning I was supposed to die in prison. He refused to plead guilty for a reduced sentence of six to eight years because he knew he was innocent. And it was my grandmother who really encouraged me because I wanted to be home. But my grandmother, she just kept saying to me, you didn't do it. We're not taking anything. And and to this day, it's, I'm so happy that I made that decision. Yeah, I may have went home then, but I wouldn't be able to stand on what I stand on now. I wouldn't have been able to know who I am. I wouldn't have been able to survive what I survived and understand that you just don't lay down for them. So I didn't know it would be 32 years later and I didn't know I would go from 18 to 52, but I can live with it because I just couldn't accept it. And I still can't accept it. Durrell went to serve his time at a Massachusetts prison known for its high murder rate. I mean, the first day I came in, While I was waiting in the holding tank, the first thing I saw was a guy coming by, stabbed up, you know, just just on a cot, just bringing him by. And that was the first sight I saw was just someone stabbed up already. And that was just an everyday occurrence of something in Walpole. Remember, Durrell's only 19 when he goes into prison. So just as he was about to really start his adult life, his whole life is put on pause. He has to adjust to a whole new reality. I think most of it was confusion to me, um, seeing another guy get murdered or being in a situation to know that the guy next to you was murdered. Like, we didn't have stand-up count. So now in the prison system, they have stand-up count. You know, you have to stand all over the system to make sure that you're alive so when the guards go by. But back then, you, you, you when I first came, you didn't have stand-up count. So a guy would be dead next door to you and literally dead And the police would walk by because somebody would go in there and change his hat, sit him up, move him around, change this. So it would look like he's alive every time they would go by because somebody would move him around. That's the kind of mind state was in that prison. You know what I mean? And so it was just confusing to me 
growing up around it and just, you know, looking at what was acceptable and just the mentality, you know, the mentality was just survive or be done in. Two years later, in 1988, Darrell filed his first appeal. It was denied. Darrell just kept waiting. You know, and prior to that, I thought something would happen. I always thought something would happen. I'm out of here. You know, I would be gone. And that's how I primarily did the time, just believing, like, I'm going to be out of here. You know, that people are going to know or people are going to do something about it. I expected things that didn't happen. I expected people to follow up on it or I expected someone to come forward. I don't know. Maybe it was just in my head, but it wasn't like the movies. You know, no one just came forward and no one just jumped in. I was just there. I was just there my whole life. You know, I was fortunate because I spent my time in prison creating programs. You know, I created the first video from a prison for bullying and just speaking to kids from this system. Um, I was able to do a lot of things. You know, I, I was able to make an album to, you know, I be able to get a bunch of rap artists and music artists to come together and mothers throughout Boston who had lost their kids. I made a, you know, I had a song made for each one that lost their kids and had the artists spend, you know, two or three weeks with those families going to the kids' room. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate in that. You know, I, I ran my magazine from prison, you know, um, with True Magazine, with the girls that I worked with as well. And, and just, so I was, I was busy. I created four or five programs that are still in the prison system. I spent my time like fighting to change it that way. Like they hated me for that, you know, like the system, they don't want no change. So I just took my energy out creating things to make change. So that's how I did the time. Over the years, Darrell was adamant that he was innocent and that the police tape was tampered with. In 2015, after 30 years in prison, he filed a motion to reopen his case based on new evidence that police tampered with the videotape of Terry Lynn Starks. And it was around that time that Darrell contacted the New England Center for Investigative Reporting about his case, and they started digging. And in 2016, the investigative group and a Boston radio station, WBUR, published new findings that finally confirmed what Darrell was saying all along. They tracked down a juror named Eleanor Abadi, who always regretted Darrell's conviction. She's white and from a middle-class neighborhood. And she said that two jurors had told her they thought Darrell was guilty just because he's black. She said she didn't want to die with that. You know, although it took 32 years of my life before she did come forward, I'm real thankful for Miss Abadi just telling that truth. Then there was a doctored videotape. Darrell and his attorney had digital tools that didn't exist in the 1980s. They were able to prove that the tape was purposefully edited. The experts proved that. And the tape was my biggest thing. Like, let's look at the tape. He did something to this tape. He's lying. He, he manipulated this tape. And that's exactly what he did. With this new evidence, Darrell and his attorney filed a fourth motion in 2017. A Massachusetts judge agreed that Darrell's first trial wasn't fair. The judge overturned the murder conviction and granted Darrell a new trial. After Darrell's lawyer got the news, she drove straight to prison to tell him. Darrell was overcome with emotion. You know, it, it must be like, I can't say it was like, but it must be like the beautiful thing a woman experienced that they can, for us men not to be able to have children and to carry. And I always just wonder what's that like? It's, it's, it's that same feeling, like whatever that joy that a woman has bringing us forth in life and just bringing us here 
it just felt like a new birth in a new world and a new opportunity. It felt like freedom. Two days later, Darrell was released from prison on bail. At 50 years old, he was finally out. The transition were the people that was there for me, the people that helped me, the people that cared for me. You know, my dad, I went to live right with my dad in a beautiful place. I walked into a palace, you know what I mean? Like day one, my first night, I lived in a palace. I lived in a mansion, you know, in the most beautiful place you ever saw. And I just was in shock. But at the same time, I was like, I'm out here on a bail. Why am I just free? Why am I reporting to anybody every Friday? Why am I even dealing with it? While he awaits his new trial, set for May 20th, Darrell tries not to think about prison. So I felt like if I carry prison out here or be angry about it, that would be bringing that place out here. And I'd be rearresting myself, so I refused to do that. So I just jumped into living. You know, I, I looked at everything everybody else didn't look at. The scents, flowers, you know, a black squirrel. I always tell the story that I was with my friends and we were in a car and I saw black squirrel but they didn't know and I was like stop the car stop the car stop the car I gotta see you know because I had never seen it in prison I'm not seeing the animals and you know all these things you're not you're not seeing it so everything to me was new you know the, the smell of perfumes I could smell every scent everything that other people would just go by or things that people don't look at people would see me I would look at trees and you know I just take in everything so I was too busy taken in the world to be tied to what had happened. I was just waiting for, you know, this to end. My happiness is my own. I give it to myself. I wake up and tell myself the same way someone can give themselves a bowl of cereal for breakfast. I got a choice. And that's what it comes down to. I wake up and I just tell myself, okay, here's the choice. Think about what they did to you. Think about what they're trying to do to you. Think about how harsh it was. Think about what you saw in the prison system. Think what you had to live through. Think how long you were there. Or get up and say, man, I don't even want water. I want orange juice and I want to go out on the porch and I want to sit there. And if I want to monitor squirrels all day, if I want to look at birds I couldn't see, I do it. I'm in control of it. And when you haven't been in control, you would never understand what it's like to have a little bit of control. To pick my own toothpaste matters to me. You know, I've been in stores for the longest just reading every brand. Like, ah, what's that brand? What's that flavor? And it might sound silly to someone else, but it's living. And, and, and I'm not getting off a of living for anybody. But he also can't help reflecting on the time he lost. Well, here's the reality. I learned in life you can get anything back. If someone broke in your home and took everything you had, you could get that again. You might not get the same TV. You might not get the same radio, headphones, whatever. But you can get it again. Um, someone stole your car, you can replace it, right? You know, fire, you can you can get things again. The only thing in life you can't get back is time. So they took the most valuable thing from me was time. And that time was away from my son. You know, I lost my son, Darius, and he was killed on the streets of Boston in 208. So I lost my son in prison. And then prior to that, two weeks apart, I lost my only brother and my grandmother in 1991, two weeks apart. So I was losing a lot, you know, and... That time, I can't get back. And those relationships, I can't get back. And when I came out here, you know, I couldn't even go to my son's funeral. So when my son got killed, I couldn't go 
to his funeral. I couldn't go say bye. I couldn't do anything. So coming out here, going to his grave for the first time was like, I don't even, I can't even put words to it sometimes. You know, I can't even, it's like I wasn't there for him. Not only was I not able to be there for him physically, although he was, you know, he came to the prison. He was brought a lot. I kind of raised my kids in there. I fought the DSS system about them. And so I had a lot of good times with them, although I was incarcerated. But I couldn't be there for him at the most traumatic time of his life, you know, and that never leaves me. Since his release a year and a half ago, Darrell has become somewhat of an activist. He's trying to make sure what happened to him doesn't keep happening to other people. When I... You know, if you look at Mass alone in the last seven or so guys that got out, and this is just in a matter of three or four years, you know, guys that are out innocent, they're white, black, Spanish, Asian. So this doesn't just happen to one race of people. So it can happen to anybody. You know what I mean? It can happen to you tomorrow. It can happen to your grandchildren. It can happen to your children. It can happen to your father, your mother. And we have to be conscious of that. What Darrell realized is that whenever the state's district attorney prosecutes a case, they're doing it on behalf of the people in that state. So when someone like Darrell is prosecuted unjustly, the people should know about it. Darrell has literally stood on the side of the road in Boston trying to get people to understand this. And so I started pulling people over downtown Boston in different places and do these little videos with my phone. And I would stop people and say, do you know who I am? And, and, and do you know, can you name one innocent man? Can you name... And people couldn't do it. And I was explaining to them that the law says that they have to prosecute in your name. So when I went to trial to this day, it's Commonwealth versus Darrell Jones. It's Commonwealth versus Sean Ellis. It's Commonwealth versus Nat. It's Commonwealth versus Frederick Clay. It's the Commonwealth versus us. And so they're doing it in your name, meaning in behalf of the people. But we're going to jail and the people are not aware that people have went to jail, not only in their name, but that people have went to jail falsely in their name. Darrell now uses the phrase, not in my name, as sort of a rallying cry to get people to pay attention to what's happening inside the criminal justice system. If someone robbed someone, you know, and and, and raped a woman or, or hurt a child or whatever, and they were running around with a picture of you on their shirt every time they did a crime, you would come right out and be the first one at the news. Not saying you particularly, but most people, I'm sure, would be the first ones reaching out to say, hey, I don't know this guy. I don't know why he's wearing a picture of me on his shirt with every crime he does, but I do not know him, right? And that's how I look at not in my name. I'm going, well, you should feel the same way about them putting people away in your name falsely. See, for Darrell, the worst part about spending over three decades in jail for a crime he didn't commit was the fact that no one seemed to know or care about it. So after all this time, he's relieved and grateful that people are finally paying attention. I'm so happy that it's not in the dark. Like when something's done to you in the dark and you can't get it out and no one knows and no one's listening and no one can see it. No one can see that witness telling you and read them themselves and see what they're saying and look at what the police did. It's it's a blessing. It's it's the craziest thing I know to be like, man, listen, you're, you're going back into a courtroom where these people are trying to take your life again. And I'm going, you can't take my life again. You took my life. I'm living now. You can't take my life. The only thing you can do is just open up the release for me to be able to say it's secret no more. That's what hurt me most. 
All Darrell can do for now is hope that his trial later this month will be fair and finally exonerate him. Until then, he's taking life one day at a time. I'm living now. The future belongs to those who see it first. And so I see my future by living it now. I can't pause my life. They've already paused it for 32 years. I live it every day. When I leave this interview and walk back down these stairs, I'm able to take in fresh air. I'm able to decide if I want to go left down the street, right down the street. I'm able to decide if I want to go in the store and buy a ginger ale or Coke. These are decisions that I could never make for 32 years. You know, since a kid, I could never have control of anything I wanted to do. And I'm out here living. I'm just taking in day-to-day living. So I think I'm all right. You can learn more about Darrell's case at the New England Center for Investigative Reporting and WBUR. Without the reporting on this, Darrell's story might have never seen the light of day. From Wondery, this is I Survivor. I Survivor is hosted by me, Jenna Brister, and Wagatwe Wenjuki. This episode was produced by Greta Weber. Our senior producer is Diane DiStefano. Audio engineering by Sergio Enriquez. Sound design and additional editing by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. I Survivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. Executive producers are Stephanie Jentz, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, I'm Brooke. And I'm Marisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich, a show about the occasionally outrageous behavior of people who have a lot of money and a lot of feelings. On our next season, we bring you a story that combines sibling rivalry, high fashion, and murder. Gianni and Donatella Versace built one of the most iconic fashion labels in the world. But when Gianni gets shot, it's up to Donatella to step out from behind her brother's shadow and try to save the brand they built from ruin. Subscribe to Even the Rich, The House of Versace, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.